This is the evening sermon from Hillcrest Bible Church in Portland, Oregon. For more information on Hillcrest Bible Church, please visit our website at hillcrestbible.org. Good evening. Please turn with me to the book of Philippians. Before I begin, I'd like to open a word of prayer. Father, we are, again, so thankful that we can come and to be built up in the truth of your word that we need to hear. Lord, we, we desire to know you more. We desire to live a life of obedience. We desire to live a life that joyfully reflects the God who redeemed us. And Father, as we look into your word tonight, by the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray that, God, you would change us and allow us to have a heart that truly rejoices in no matter what circumstance you sovereignly direct in our lives. Lord, we, we know this life is full of difficulties and struggles. But apart from you, we can do absolutely nothing. It is your grace that is sufficient in each and every one of our lives. And we thank you for that. We thank you for bringing those people here tonight to be encouraged, to be built up in the truth that we need to hear. So we pray for your blessing and for your glory to be seen in Jesus' name. Amen. Philippians 1. Tonight, I'm not going to really tell you anything that's new. I'm going to hopefully be like uh, Peter, as he said in that wonderful chapter in 1 Peter 1, or I'm writing these things to remind you or to stir you up by way of reminder of the things that you already know. Actually, I think that's 2 Peter. But the point is, there's nothing new that I'm about to say to you tonight. It's just to bring to your mind the truths that you love and hold dearly in your life. And I think Paul, as we look into this wonderful book, is going to unveil for us some wonderful truths, not new truths, but truths that will hopefully, by the grace of God, transform us as we think upon them and as we meditate upon them and as we apply them to our lives. But I'm going to read Philippians 1, verses 12, down through verse 21. I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard. Now, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well-known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. For I know that this shall turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope 
that I shall not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ shall even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Life definitely has its challenges. You live long enough in this world, and the inevitable will occur. A hardship, a distress, a difficulty. We simply cannot escape the hardships of this life in a fallen world, though we may try. I love what Job 14 verse 1 says, where he says, For man who is born of woman is short-lived and full of turmoil. That word turmoil means hardship. Man, in his natural state, is full of hardship. In Job 5, chapter, uh, chapter 5, verse 7, For man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward. As sure as sparks fly upward, we are born for trouble, or literally a hard life for misery. The psalmist in 71, verse 20 states, Thou who has shown me many troubles and distresses wilt revive me. In that familiar text in John sixteen thirty three, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. You literally have anguish, you have distress, you have trouble. But we like the end of that verse, of course, but take courage, I've overcome the world. And when we go look in the book of James, chapter 1, verses 3 to 5, we see the many troubles that the psalmist uh, talked about come in a variety of different fashions and forms because that's what trials come in. It says, Consider all joy when you encounter various trials, literally many forms. All forms, all types of trials come our way. And Peter uses that same word uh, in verse uh, 6 of chapter 1 where he says, Even though now, for a little while, if necessary, it's necessary, it's unavoidable, it must happen, that we experience distresses or pains by various trials, all kinds of trials. This is life in a cursed world. We can't escape the troubles of this life, and they are many. The world deals with troubles in one way, and they have their vices, But are we as believers in Christ to respond in kind? A trial for a follower of Christ is a means that God uses to sanctify us. We know that. It has a purpose. As Job 23, 10-14 says, I love that section of Scripture, But he knows the way I take. When he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. My foot is held fast to his path, and I have not departed from the command of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. But he is unique. And what his soul does, he desires. And what he desires, as he says there, is he appoints for me and many, he is appointed for me and many such decrees are with me. And he's referring to trials. The question then for the believer is not how can we escape trials? Because God purposes them. And that won't happen this side of glory. The issue is how do we view our trials? Or how do we see them? How do we respond to trials when they come into our life? Is it possible to be like Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 4, when he says, I am overflowing with joy in all our afflictions. Can we really say that? 
that I have this great excess of joy in the abundance of my afflictions? Is that even possible? Well, the short answer is, you have the same God that Paul did. You have the same Holy Spirit at work in you. So the answer is yes. The long answer, we're going to look at that in this section of Scripture here that I just read. I think it's going to be a wonderful section for us to look at and for you to think about and meditate on. Paul is writing to a body of believers that he loves very deeply. He expresses that truth in uh, verse 7 and 8 of chapter 1. He hasn't fellowship with this group of believers for a long time. They faithfully supported him in his ministry when he left Philippi. And now, when you look at chapter 4, verse 16 to 18, he says, For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. But I have received everything in full. I have an abundance. I am amply supplied. I have received from Epaphroditus what you have sent a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. But something caused these believers to go missing in action, if you will, in their support of Paul. Even though they supported Paul more than anybody else, something happened. And we can get a little glimpse of what might have happened as you read 2 Corinthians 8, and we're not going to go there. As Paul says about the Macedonian churches, and Philippi was in Macedonia, in the region of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty, they overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. Obviously, they were going through extreme affliction. Paul talks about that at the end of chapter 1, that they were being persecuted. But they were also possibly experiencing deep poverty, which speaks of severe economic conditions. Life was not going well for these believers. So whatever the reasons for not supporting Paul in this gap, these many years, uh, they obviously had heard that Paul was in prison. And so they sent one of their own, Epaphroditus, as we see in chapter 2, verse 25, where he says, But I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need. So they sent Epaphroditus to minister to Paul. So Paul responds in kind by sending this and writing this letter to them so he can deal with some of the concerns that obviously Epaphroditus shared with with him about what they were thinking. So he responds and tells them, I'm joyful. God is in control. His word is going forth and it's having its effect, even though it may not have seemed like it because I'm in prison. I'm pressing on. I'm rejoicing In God's presence, as he talks about that in chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, I'm satisfied with Christ. He is my hope, chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. Oh, and by the way, he reminds them, conduct yourself in a manner that is pleasing to the Lord. Live like a citizen of heaven. And so he admonishes them in some wonderful and glorious truths throughout this epistle, which we're not going to take time to look at. Well, the major theme in Philippians if you probably have heard and probably know this, is the sufficiency of Christ in every circumstance. And joy is the dominant theme or the dominant tone, if you will, throughout this epistle. In fact, joy and rejoicing is used 19 times in this epistle. But also even more is the word Christ. It is mentioned over 50 times in this epistle. I don't think that connection is coincidental. Because Paul's rejoicing and his joy is related to his spiritual connection to his Savior. Christ is sufficient in all circumstances for him. 
See, Paul looked at every circumstance in his life, and that's what he talks about in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 4, in any and every circumstance, as ordained by God, and as an opportunity to exalt Christ in his life. In fact, he says that in verse 20. But that with all boldness, Christ shall even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Because of this reality, and this is how Paul looked at his life, that he realized that his purpose was to exalt and glorify God, that's what brought him joy. See, dire circumstances in Paul's life did not affect his outlook. He could count everything loss in view of the surpassing knowledge of knowing Jesus Christ, his Lord, as he says that in chapter 3, verses 8. In fact, in verse uh, 8, he says, I count everything in this life, all my accomplishments, everything I've achieved, as literally manure or dung. He uses the most grotesque word that a Jew would have written. But in compared to gaining Christ, I count everything manure and dung. And that I may be found in him in verse 9 of chapter 3. That I may know him. It was all about Christ for Paul. His whole identity was wrapped in him. Life for Paul was about Christ and nothing else mattered. Bad circumstances did not affect him. He didn't look at his circumstances and say, I'm a prisoner of Rome. In fact, he never said that. He said he was a prisoner of Christ. In fact, he used that term, I believe, at least four times. Ephesians 3.1, Ephesians 4.1, I think it's 2 Timothy 1.8, and Philemon 9. There might have been one other place. But that's how he viewed his life. He was not a prisoner of Rome. He was a prisoner of Christ. I love what he says in Acts 27, one of my favorite verses. And I have it a little sticky note on my, my computer. Uh, Acts 27, 23, where he says, For this very night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and to whom I serve stood before me. That's how he looked at his life. I belong to him, and I serve, and I worship him. It didn't matter what life threw at him, because he knew, he knew whose possession he was. He knew whom he possessed, and he knew where he was going. In 1 Corinthians six nineteen through 20 one of my favorite verses is, uh, Paul says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. You've been bought with a price. You've been purchased to be his slave. You're not your own. Therefore, glorify God in your body. That's how Paul looked at his life. And so that's why I believe he can confidently say, in like in uh, Philippians 4.4, 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your forbearing spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near, or the Lord is present. Now, before we move further into this sharing, as my wife likes to call it, <laughs> what I'm doing up here, sharing uh, God's Word with you, uh, I want to define biblical joy for you as opposed or in contrast to happiness. Because Paul is talking about joy, he's not talking about happiness. As we know, the word happiness comes from happenstance or chance. It's dependent upon circumstances. We can be happy when everything is going well, or we can be sad when circumstances are not favorable. When my wife and my daughter make me an apple pie, I'm extremely happy. And even more happy when it's a la mode. I'm not as happy when it's done. 
and I finished it on my own, which, which doesn't happen often. I'm happy when the Ducks win. This last year, I was not as happy. So circumstances were not favorable for me. But that's what happiness is. I experienced a trial not too long ago, and you may laugh at it, but I was downstairs in our living room. The hottest day of the year, the air conditioning decided to stop working. And so I'm down there sitting on the ground trying to um, deal with another problem that wasn't working. I spent two hours with somebody from the Philippines on the phone, and if you've ever done that, you probably know that experience. But I was going through some struggles. It's hot. This thing that I've been spending, wasting my time on is not cooperating. And then uh, someone in my family comes downstairs and said, Dad, the lights are not working upstairs. What? So, yeah, the lights just don't come on. The lights aren't coming on. What's going on? So I'm heading upstairs. And this is the sad part about it. My family starts laughing at me. But I go upstairs, and the lights are not working. So needless to say, I would say I was not very happy. I have no idea why they didn't come on, because they're on now. But it was interesting how my circumstances were not favorable, and so I looked at my circumstances, and I was not happy. But joy and rejoicing is just the opposite of that. It's a totally different word. Joy comes from the word grace. It's a direct result of God's grace. You can define joy in this way. It's a state of well-being because of God's grace. Joy is a total confidence in God's sovereignty in every circumstance. Why? Because all is well because my God is in control. It doesn't mean every circumstance is to my liking. Joy says God is in control in spite of my circumstances because all is well because he is in control. Joy is a life then lived in a confident trust in a sovereign God, independent of my circumstances. I'm all for being happy. I like happiness. I like to feel good. I like things that make me feel good. But what I really desire, above all, is a deep-down confidence that all is well, and that is joy. Well, with that in mind, let's briefly look into this section of Scripture that I believe captures Paul's reasons for why he experienced joy in the midst of his difficult circumstances. One of the reasons why Paul wrote this letter, we can see in chapter, I just read this in verse 12, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. And Paul is telling these saints that he's written to that the gospel has progressed along two fronts. One, outside the church in an evangelistic manner, many people are coming to faith in Christ. And in verse 14, and then most of the brethren became fearless and bold. So his imprisonment had an effect from an evangelistic standpoint. As you can imagine, Paul being chained to uh, four or, or six different guards a day. Actually, it was, I think it was for six hours. So you got four guards a day, 24-7. And these individuals would go out and obviously uh, explain or talk to their families or whatever. And Paul is boldly proclaiming the gospel, and many came to faith in Christ. But then that imprisonment caused many within the body of Christ to be extremely bold in their proclamation of the gospel. Unfortunately, from in verses 15 to 18, his imprisonment had another effect. The sum in verse 15 refers to the brethren in 14. These are not the Judaizers in chapter 3, verse 1. These are brethren in Christ. 
They were preaching Christ from envy and strife. Literally, Literally, these brothers felt displeasure and ill will towards Paul. And they viewed him as a rival. Those are what those two words together mean. Their motive is revealed in verse 17, selfish ambition or self-seeking pursuit. They had this driving ambition to elevate themselves above Paul in the ministry. And they were thinking in doing that, that they would cause Paul distress, literally rub him raw. They wanted to irritate him. They wanted to hurt him emotionally. And it's amazing to think that within the body of Christ, that can actually happen. But it's even more amazing to me to see Paul's response. That's what we have in verse 18. What does he say? What then? Or so what? Or what does it matter? I don't care what their motives were or what they're trying to do to me. That's not the point here. Only that in every way, he says, in every motive, Christ is proclaimed. This is the only thing that matters. Christ is proclaimed. Not whether I'm personally attacked. That's not the issue, but that Christ is proclaimed. And so he says, in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. My present joy will become my future joy. Point is, I will remain joyful no matter what is done to me personally, because it is not about me. It's about all about Christ and the gospel going forth. Well, in verses 19 to 20, which is going to be my main focus in the remaining minutes that I have, I want to point out, I think, four um, points here that uh, Paul is discussing that gave him deep down confidence that all is well. And I'm going to list those four right now, and then we'll talk about them individually. Paul had this deep down confidence all is well because he had the absolute confidence in who was in control of his life. He had this absolute confidence the saints were lifting him him up before the throne room of grace. And he had absolute confidence in the Holy Spirit's presence and support in his circumstance. And he had this absolute confidence in the future promises of God. Let's, uh, before I get to those specific points, I want to, uh, before I dissect them, I want to look at the word deliverance first before we move forward. Most of you have that word deliverance. It's a very common New Testament word. It literally means to be saved. It's a common uh, word, uh, zozo in the Greek. It can speak of material or temporal deliverance, like in Matthew 14.30 where Peter says, Lord, save me. He's not talking about salvation. He's talking about rescuing me from being drowned in that uh, situation there. The word can also be translated vindicate or to release or to deliver, or to rescue. But its most common usage in the New Testament is salvation. For example, Acts 4.12, very common. And there is salvation, what, in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which you must save, be saved. He uses that word there, salvation. Romans 1.16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for what? Salvation. Okay? To the Jew first and also to the Greek. That's that same word he uses here in this text. Titus 3, 4, and 5, but when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, what? He saved us. That's that word, so-so. Okay, that's the word save. So what is Paul then referring to when he says in verse 19, for I know that this shall turn out for my deliverance 
or my salvation, or my rescue. What is he referring to there? Is he referring to my vindication in trial, as some would think he is referring to that, as a defender of the gospel? He mentions that in uh, verse 7. Maybe I'll be released from prison. Is that what he's thinking about? This trial will, um, will result in my being released from prison? In verse 25, he says, I'm convinced of this, that I know that I shall remain and continue with you. Is he speaking about maybe I will die and go to glory where I will ultimately be rescued from sin forever? Because in chapter 2, verse 17, he's unsure. He says, but even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you. We know two years later, Paul, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, where he says, I am being poured out. So we know that then he, he knew he was going to die, but here there was a lot of uncertainty. He wasn't sure what was going to happen in his life. And because Paul wasn't sure, and because Paul is not omniscient, and he's not sure what God is going to do in his life, the emphasis, I think, in this section here is not really on the fact that he's going to be released, or that he's going to be saved, or that he's going to be rescued. I think the focus of this should be on for I know that this trial will turn out. This word, I know, is used in chapter 3 to speak of an experiential knowledge, where he says, that I may know him. That's a different word that is used here. This word, I know, is an intuitive knowledge. The other one is experiential knowledge. I know Christ in the experiences of my life because I see him at work in my life and I know he's there and I know that's experiential. The intuitive knowledge that he's using here is that I have come to a full and complete complete conviction with absolute understanding. That's the word that he's using here. I know with absolute conviction that this will turn out. His, Paul has this renewed mind, as we know. He has this renewed mind that is being transformed daily by the Word of God. And his renewed mind was telling him, I have absolute conviction that this trial will turn out. Now, what is that word, this trial will turn out for my deliverance? This is the first point that I want to talk about. This trial will turn out. The Greek word literally means to disembark, as like from a ship, to disembark and to go somewhere. Paul is saying with this word, that this trial is causing me to go out and to go away. Literally, this is a pathway. This trial is a pathway that is leading me somewhere. In other words, it has a purpose. This trial will lead to something, and it will result in me getting out and going away. That's the idea of this word. An amazing thought to think about. Because why is this important to think about, that this trial, with absolute conviction that Paul had, will lead somewhere. The end game is not being in prison, although God used that as a means for the gospel to go forth boldly. But in Paul's mind, that's not the end game for me. The end game is this will cause me to get up, go out, and go on. And because we don't know exactly what that is, I think what we can glean from this is that circumstances can tell us one thing. Sometimes we define our circumstances where our, or literally, sometimes we define our God by our circumstances. We say, God, where are you? Why is this happening? 
Instead, we should be defining our circumstances by what we know to be true of our God. Paul would have had every right to complain about his circumstance. Lord, what are you doing? Why is this happening to me? I thought you were going to use me to proclaim the gospel and to preach the gospel outside or, and to build churches and all that stuff. He had every right to complain in the flesh. My trial might be telling me one thing, but the truth is God is at work. He's using this trial in my life for a purpose and it's leading me somewhere. That is why I believe it is so important to know the character of your God. Paul knew his God intimately. He knew his God would never leave him nor forsake him. He knew his God had a purpose for why he was in jail. And he had a purpose for his future and where he was going to lead him. I love in Lamentations 3, chapter, 20, uh, chapter 3, verses 21 to 22, where, where uh, Jeremiah is in a very difficult circumstance. Everything around him is falling apart. Jerusalem is under siege. People are dying left and right. It's not a good situation. And he's feeling like God is not hearing his prayers. He's feeling like a, a target practice. People are saying all sorts of things about him. But he, in the middle of that chapter, he says, This I recall to my mind. Therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. What happened after that with Jeremiah was that his circumstances did not change. They got worse. But what changed was his mind, his thinking, his understanding of the God that he served. That's what changed. So for Paul, this trial is leading somewhere. It has a purpose, and it will result in something. But because he knew his God, and he knew the character of his God, that brought him joy. When we look at trials, sometimes we think, God, what are you doing? And we know from a biblical standpoint, he's at work. We know that he is sanctifying us. He's making us holy. In James, he talks about the purpose of trials is for endurance. Whatever the purpose of a trial, and Paul doesn't specifically name them. We can obviously figure out he's going through tremendous difficult times. We know, as Romans 8.28 says, and we know this, right? He uses that same word. And we know, we have absolute confidence that God causes all things to work together, literally weave together my circumstances for my good and ultimately for his glory. So, as Job said, the last part of Job 23, he performs what is appointed for me, and many such decrees are with him. I love what Johnny Erickson said. M- many of you know who she is. She's a paraplegic since her high school years in a uh, Drown, not a drowning, but a, a swimming accident. And a godly woman. Have some wonderful books out there. But I love what she says about trials. God does not remove the hardships. He allows them. He purposes them. He ordains them. He permits them. And pain and problems and paralysis become the lemon that he squeezes in my life revealing all sorts of things from which I need to repent. Bitterness, spitefulness, selfishness. I don't like it when God squeezes that lemon, but I need it. I think she has the right perspective on trials. 
Well, Paul had this, ab- this absolute confidence in his God that his trial was leading him somewhere. And whatever God is doing, I'm not here by accident. He will deliver me in his timing. So the first point in this section is Paul had absolute confidence that this trial was leading somewhere. The second point, he had absolute confidence and conviction that he would be delivered through your prayers. And the third point, and the provision of the Holy Spirit. He knew he could count on the believers for prayer support, for coverage. That's what that word means, provision, prayer support, cover. Paul knew confidently that these saints were praying for him continually. Just like Paul, in the early part of this chapter, was praying constantly. Whenever he thought of these believers, he was praying for them. It was assuring to him to know that the saints were praying constantly for him. So he knew that he could count on the believing saints to be praying for him in his trial. Wouldn't that give you comfort when you think about it, knowing that the body is praying for you? Wouldn't that give you joy? knowing that you're not alone in your trial? God uses faithful and diligent prayers of the saints in his providential dealings. And Paul knew that, and that brought him great joy. The third point there, why would, uh, a third point of why Paul could rejoice in his trials is because he had absolute confidence in the provision of the Holy Spirit. This word literally means help or supply. As you know, in John 14, 16, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. That's the prokletos, the one who comes alongside. The helper is the one who comes alongside us and says he will never leave us nor forsake us, right? We also know that the Spirit is a pledge or a a guarantee or a down payment, if you will, of our future inheritance, as Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 says. And also says that in 2 Corinthians 1, verses 21 and 22. But Paul is telling us here, the Holy Spirit is our daily support, and our daily uh, supply. The emphasis, though, on this word is the provision which the Holy Spirit gives us, which is supply and support. I love it. It's translated that word, same word in Ephesians 4.16, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing for you, is holding you together in the midst of your trials. So the point is the Spirit will grant us, every believer in Christ, Whatever is necessary to sustain him through your trial. Again, circumstances might be telling you, Lord, where are you? But Paul had absolute confidence, and we can too, that the strength and the resource and the comfort and supply is there by the Holy Spirit. Most of you probably know 2 Corinthians 9, or 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 11. My grace is sufficient, right? For power is perfected in weakness. We know that the presence of the Holy Spirit is with us no matter what, no matter where we are, no matter what difficulties we're experiencing. And it would have been a great comfort and joy as it was to Paul to know that he had believing saints who were praying for him constantly and that the Holy Spirit was his strength and his provision and his supply in the midst of his difficult times. Then Paul says in verse 20, according to my earnest expectation and hope. When you think about trials, at least I think this way, sometimes I will try to grin and bear it. Okay, Lord, I know I need to come under this trial. And so we have this mindset of grinning and bear it and bearing it. 
I just want to get through this by the grace of God with my teeth grit clenched together. Well, that wasn't Paul's response. He used the word earnest expectations translated in Romans chapter 8, verses 19, for the anxious longing of the creation. The idea behind this word, and it's an amazing word in the Greek word, is to catch a glimpse of something that is ahead. Literally, to strain your neck forward. As one uh, Greek lexicon said, it implies not mere expectation, but the anxious desire of an anticipated event. The anxious desire of an anticipated event. In our vernacular, we could probably say, I can't wait to see what God is going to do. That was Paul's observation. That was Paul's thought process when he looked at trials. I can't wait to see what God is going to do in my life. It's amazing to have that kind of mindset. Now, the reason why he could also have that mindset, the fourth point here I want to make, is that he had hope. He had hope. Hope that he would not be put to shame in anything. Biblical hope can be defined in two ways. It's important. A desire for some good with the expectation of obtaining it. But I think even more important, it's the foundation or the object upon which your hope is based. Biblical hope is based upon the object, if you will, God himself. He's the object of my hope. Biblical hope is to know confidently that God will fulfill his purposes in me and in the future. If the object of your hope is not God, then you're on a sinking sand. You're in sinking sand. A lot of times we think about, I hope that this will happen. The world will say, I hope this happens. But that hope is based upon the ability of the one you place your hope in. That is very shaky. For us in Christ, because our hope and our confident uh, expectation is that our hope is based upon the God who is our Redeemer. That is security. I love what Timothy says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, where he says, Instruct those who are rich in this present age not to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. But then he says, but in God. Biblical hope is not putting my trust in something that can easily disappear or easily have a shaky foundation. With But biblical hope is to put your trust and hope in God. I love what Adonira, mispronouncing his name, Judson, he was a missionary back in the 18th and 19th century for 30 years. He had many trials and difficulties, which you can imagine somebody in the mission field that time, in that decade. He lost his wife. He had tremendous health issues, tremendous problems. But he says the future is as bright as the promises of God. Now, to me, that's, that's, a, that's a good definition of hope. The future is bright because of the promises of God, right? Paul had such confidence in who was in control of every one of his circumstances and of his life that he could say, like he does in 1 Timothy 4.10, For this purpose also I labor, or for I strive or I labor for this reason. Why? Because I fix my hope on the living God, 1 Timothy 4.10. That's why he has such confidence, because his hope was based on his God. 
In first in Titus one two, he says, "In the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago." The reason why I have eternal life is not because I'm wishing it. I have eternal life because of the God who I've placed my hope in. That gives me confidence. That gave Paul confidence in the midst of his difficult circumstance. Because he knew his God, he knew the character of his God, and it brought great joy to him. Paul anticipated rescue because Christ was the object of his guaranteed future. Now, the difference between faith and hope, faith is a present, a present confidence based upon God's promises. It's literally the provision the Holy Spirit provides for us moment by moment, step by step, each day. That's faith. Hope is a confident expectation of, of the future based upon God's promises. The question then is, what affects our hope? As I think about this, why is it that we can be so despondent at times when we look at our circumstances? Why is it that we can be, um, in our minds, questioning God and and his ability to fulfill his promises in our life and sanctifying us and making us whole. Why is it that we go through those difficult moments in our lives when we look at our circumstances? And I think a lot of it is because we base our circumstances on our feelings. We look at the situation in front of us and we, and we come to a conclusion based on our limited understanding of what God is doing and we determine This must be what God is doing. And so we have such limited understanding and focus. But the biblical hope that I think we need to look at, that Paul's talking about, is how do we practically apply this hope to our circumstances? And I think we need to know our God. We need to know the character of our God. We need to know what my God says in his word. We need to understand him. We need to know that he's a God who said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He's my rock. He's my fortress. He's my deliverer. He's everything. He is in control. The Lord does what he pleases, as Psalm 115.3 says. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. Do we believe that? Do we believe the one who says, It is he who made the heavens by thy great power and by thine outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for thee. Is it that God that we serve and that we've placed our hope in and our trust in? Well, Paul says in verse uh in chapter 20, it is that hope that I have in that God that I will not be put ashamed and I will never be, sh- I will never shrink away. I will never put, uh, be put ashamed in anything for any reason because my hope is in my God. This understanding gave him boldness, as it says there. He had this courage to stand boldly for Christ, not in himself and his abilities, but in the God who he placed his hope in. Point is, Paul's confidence in Christ gave him all the boldness and courage he needed to press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, instead of being ashamed of his circumstances, he was emboldened. And he can confidently say there that Christ shall even now, in prison, while I'm in my chains, as always in the future, be exalted in my body. As always, at every time and on every occasion, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. It doesn't matter what really happens to me in this life. Whether I die, it doesn't really matter, because for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. I live because of him, and when I die, I will be with him forever. Now, we know that Paul struggled. Life was very challenging for Paul. 
2 Corinthians 11, 23-30 says, Far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death, five times beaten with 39 lashes, beaten with rods, stones, shipwrecks, sleepless nights, hungry, thirsty, in cold, then the daily pressure upon me of concern for all the churches. That was Paul's life. In 2 Corinthians 2, 1 through 4, he says, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears. Circumstances affected Paul in one sense, like the rest of us. He was emotional, but it never stole his joy. In 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 12, he says, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not despairing. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. We are struck down, but we are not destroyed. Yet in the midst of all of his difficulties and all of his struggles, and I would venture to guess that none of us would want to take Paul's place. In 2 Corinthians 7, 5, I am overflowing with joy in all my afflictions. What an amazing man. But I would say even greater than that, what an amazing God behind this man. So the question for us is, do we believe these truths? Or more importantly, do we live them? A person once said, when I heard a long time ago, your belief system is a reflection of how you live your life. Is it possible to respond and view difficult circumstances in the same way Paul did? Are you a believer? Do you have the Holy Spirit residing in you? Then it is possible. In Christ. Paul gives us very practical and wise truths in this section to hang on to as we deal with the inevitable trial that will come our way. Know your God, His character, and know your trial has a purpose. Know that you have prayer support from the body. You're not alone in this battle. Know that your God will never leave you nor forsake you. His provision, His supply is always available in the midst of a trial. Know that your God is absolutely in control of your future, and it is as guaranteed as He is God. Paul didn't look at his, at his circumstances and felt secured. He looked at his God and trusted. You might look at your life and not like what you see or what is happening, but you can look to your God and have confidence. That he's at work in you. As he says in chapter 2, verses 12 to 13, For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And I believe it's 1 Thessalonians 5, 21 and 22. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you. The reality is God is at work. Our circumstances may not always look like it, but God is at work. So, joy in the midst of difficulties. Paul's admonition was to encourage these saints in the midst of their trials, and they were in extreme difficulties. In Philippians 4.9 here, Paul says, The things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace shall be with you. And these truths, I believe, are meant to obviously to encourage us as we press on toward the goal for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for what you're doing in each and every one of our lives. 
We thank you, Lord, that we can experience joy in the midst of difficulties like Paul did. Paul is not some superhuman being. He has the same Spirit of God that we do. And I just pray for each and every one of us here as we contemplate these truths and as we leave this place and as we press on towards Christ-likeness and as we encounter the world, the difficulties that are out there, that we will always be mindful of the truth that you said you will never leave us nor will you ever forsake us. You're at work in each and every one of us. And because of that, that we can have the joy that you desire us to have, that all is well because of you. We thank you, Father, for tonight. We thank you for the blessing of fellowship afterwards. And we pray that you would be glorified in all that is said and done. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the evening sermon at Hillcrest Bible Church. In addition to our website, hillcrestbible.org, you can follow us on Facebook under Hillcrest Bible Church or through Twitter under Hillcrest Bible. You can also subscribe to the sermon podcast on our sermons page or directly in iTunes.